anything that is a luxury object um, has some form or element of mythological or magical countenance in order to give it the justification to be priced above its use value. It has to touch your soul. You're listening to Change Lab, conversations on transformation and creativity. I'm Lauren Buckman, president of Art Center College of Design. Ine Archibong is a luxury goods designer. He is also a furniture designer and a designer of immersive experiences. He is all these things. And yet, even taken as a whole, these descriptors are incomplete. Ine talks about his work this way. Any of the objects I'm making, all they are is a potential entry point to wonder. If anyone can clear that high bar, it's Ine Archibong, who has been accumulating accolades and prestigious commissions from the moment he graduated from Art Center's Environmental Design Program in 2012. After earning his MFA in Switzerland from the Lausanne University of Art and Design, ICAO for short, Ine's furniture began appearing in the pages of Vogue, Architectural Digest, and the New York Times. Beginning with his stargazer chair to his below-the-heavens suite of furniture and lighting for say collections to his blockbuster Gallup watch for Hermes, Ine's iconic work of functional art have made him a rising star in the design world. Our conversation veered into the realm of the metaphysical far more than any other interview I've conducted for this podcast. But there was something about the celestial nature of his body of work, featuring titles like Stargazer, Galilee, and Below the Heavens, that drew me to probe the spiritual basis for his creative process. Over the course of our thoughtful exchange, Innie and I discussed what it means to design a sacred space, the mythological underpinnings to his work, and how he achieves a state of creative flow. Please enjoy my conversation with Ine Archibald. So I want to enter with a statement which I think is a quote from you, which mm -hmm. says that you were put on earth to be a designer and that design is a kind of natural language for you. Yeah. And I kind of want to begin there and have you elaborate on that a bit. Yeah, I mean, the way that I kind of see it is that I was born to create. I was born to kind of take the inputs that, that come into me and, and synthesize them in a novel way. It's, it's always been there since I was a kid. Um, you know, I wouldn't... I wouldn't just take the my micro-machines and play with them. You know, I'd, I'd go and, like build a world for them to exist in, in the backyard in order to play with them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, taking things apart, putting things back together, being able to understand how things come apart, all that stuff kind of came naturally to me. And, and when I got older and started to reflect on, you know, what would be worthy of spending my time doing, it made sense to lean into what I was always good at. From my reading of your background, I would identify there was sort of a formal education that you had through Polytechnic and then USC for a bit, and then mm -hmm. Art Center, and then ICAO, mm -hmm. right? But there was this also this really interesting informal education, the Nigerian heritage of your of your family and of your parents. 
the hip-hop culture, the mm-hmm. L.A. beat scene, the great story of this architect, Tony mm-hmm. George, is that his name? Yeah, yeah. Tony oh, George. Local architect, yeah. So I'm sort of curious about those two parallel tracks that went on. But let's talk first about your formal education and interested particularly in how you got to Art Center, if we can yeah. move it forward to that. I mean, you were in, at USC and you left, right? You were in business yeah. school? Yeah, I had a presidential scholarship and it was basically to be a part of this business program. But my schedule was basically crammed with all these classes that I would need to take that um, didn't leave a lot of room for some of the artistic explorations that I just kind of took for granted would be part of my my life. And, um, you know, when I got on campus and I kind of ignored, you know, what they were telling me I was supposed to do and through pottery anyway and took philosophy classes and logic classes and, you know, uh, things that I was interested in rather than what I was supposed to be taking. It kind of was an indication that I was doing the wrong thing. Mm. So when I did end up leaving, you know, I didn't exactly know where I was going. Um, How long were you there? About two USA. years. Two years. Yeah. And then and then after that, I was just kind of bouncing around to different city colleges, which is actually how I got reminded about Art Center. Were you actually part of Art Center at night? or That came later. So um, when I was working with Tony George in South Pass, that's when I started realizing that, um, you know, I might go back to school. And mind you, this was a couple of years after I had already dropped out. You know, so I was making music and re- basically just reading a lot about architecture. What particularly compelled you about architecture at that time? Uh, the ability to shape the background for people's experiences. Which persists for you now, of course. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. it's, it, that was, I mean, it was the first time I'd been focused in my life. You know, everything before that was kind of, like I'd had successes in different places. I was always capable, but I was never really focused. I didn't have like a driving force. Once architecture became clear as something that came naturally to me, and something that I could potentially use to be a benefit, then that became a driving force. And you have to also understand I'd been, since I was 12, I'd been 3D modeling. So I also, like, I looked at what I was doing in my free time, and I was doing a lot of 3D modeling and rendering stuff and just printing it out for my own enjoyment. So I kind of knew that I had developed a skill set that was going to be applicable if I went into architecture. So it all kind of just made sense. But architecture was never really a formal part of your education as I'm describing it, correct? No, it was... Um, Clearly an important part of your education. But yeah, 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 yeah. But I think it was like the education I got from working in Tony George's office is was instrumental to my success at Art Center. Can you tell us that student. story? Yeah, it was, I mean, Mission, Mission Street in South Pass. South Pasadena. South yeah. Pasadena. I was just walking down the street and I saw him working in his office and, you know, he was bent over his table drawing and uh and i saw that it you know it said george architecture and i had already had the seed planted in my head that i wanted to be an architect so i walked in and i basically asked him you know what it's like to be an architect can you remember that moment i'm really curious about what compelled you to walk into that studio and talk to him i walked past it and then i turned around and came back and went in (laughs) you know (laughs) it was like I don't know. Yeah, there's there's a lot of things, you know. 
that was ever send me, sending me in that direction. I just, I, honestly, I just wanted to know what it was like to be an architect. Like, what do you do? <laughs> and that, that was what my question was. And, you know, and, and you know, he was nice enough to, to meet me the next day. I mean, obviously he was working and um, he gave me a chance when, when there was no reason to give me a chance. And not only that, it was at a point in my life where I didn't feel like people were giving me a chance. Mm -hmm. uh, so I guess like in the moment, the impetus was just no longer being willing to, you know, continue fearfully without taking the chance. You know, after I walked past it and I thought about it and almost didn't go in, the decision to turn around and go in, I guess, ended up being very critical. <laughs> Tell us about the journey in that yeah. world. In that world, I mean, it was it was quite a journey. You know, there was a lot of ups and downs, but ultimately it was, it was the best formative uh, education I could have had um, going into the adventure of Art Center, you know? Right. Um, because he gave me essentially a leg up, like an advantage, because he didn't, he didn't allow the fact that I wasn't trained or educated to be a hindrance for my responsibility to do the job right. <laughs> you know? Right. So it didn't matter that I didn't know. He had all the books on the shelf. Um, he gave, he put the computer in front of me with the drafting programs and he put me through exercises to learn how to draw. And he presented me with the drawings that he had and he educated me on like the, um, on the importance of uh, an architectural drawing style that shouldn't be lost because you're working on a computer. <laughs> and uh, he taught me how to see, you know, because I'd worked a lot in three dimensions. And in my mind, once I, once he started putting me through these exercises, I was like, I kept asking him, when can I get into the 3D? I, you know, I know how to do 3D and he wouldn't let me do 3D. Mm -hmm. It was just cutting sections, cutting sections, uh, going into, you know, doing drawings of like going into homes, measuring them and having to draft what I had just measured, um, you know, like drawing, doing as-builts. You know, all of these things were were critical because by the time I got to Art Center, I, I knew how to do all those things. I mean, even for my entrance portfolio and when I got to Art Center at night, you know, the other students might do a hand-drawn floor plan, but I would just draft everything out and I would show the details of how things would be put together and, you know, the sections through through the important areas of how structures needed to be put together. And half the time the teachers were like, this is completely unnecessary. <laughs> but, but Tony made you do it. Yeah, yeah, but Tony taught me that that's yeah. the way you do things. Yeah. And also the way to think about things is in a complete way. You know, I couldn't get away with doing half of my homework. He would look at my drawings and say like, there's no such thing as a line with no end in reality. <laughs> you know? right. no, I mean, it sounds like you've also like you've metabolized his teaching, right? I mean, it's part of you. You, oh, it feels like you still carry it with you. Yeah. Completely, yeah, because it's a it's an approach and a way of seeing and a way of thinking that is architectural. Now back. On the formal side of the ledger here, going into environmental design, which, you know, I'm not even sure how many of our listeners 
outside of the art center family really know what environmental design is. Can you yeah, talk about that? And people what? don't. <laughs> they get it wrong every time. They think I make, I plant trees. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. It's all about climate change. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Right, right. I remember I had a, a friend's mom that found out I was, I was studying environmental design and she said, great, I've been wanting to redo my garden. <laughs> <laughs> like, I actually, I can help with that. Yeah, exactly. That's not, yeah. <laughs> That's, right, right. But um, yeah, environmental design was, once I started looking into it, I realized that was that I wanted to do environmental design rather than architecture. There were a couple of reasons. One of them was just purely practical. I felt like I was too old to go start a five-year architecture program, one. Two, um, I knew that if I, that I could complete the environmental design program potentially in three years and then take that degree to go for a, a master's in architecture. And that the time that I'd spent working with, with Tony, could possibly translate over into like you know the apprenticeship hours that you have to accumulate before you can take the the exams. Right. So I went into art center thinking that it was going to be the first step toward a, a master's in architecture. And once I got to art center, it was uh, it was clear that there was something else going on. You know, the concept of experience design, designing an experience from the inside out rather than from the outside in. Mm. stuck with me. Can you tell listeners who have no idea what environmental design is what you believe it to be? Um, yeah. It's the design of, of the experience from the perspective of the person who's having the experience. Um, an example of that, I mean, projects we did. Um, second term, we did a spa project that was, I did a sound and light uh, healing spa. And, you know, the way, the process of doing it is you're starting from a first-person perspective storyboard of the experience before you get into designing anything. You know, and that, that kind of tells you exactly the difference between environmental design and architecture. Right. And interiors, too. And interiors also, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, for me, it developed, it developed a process that I still use in terms of writing because I realized that writing, for me, was a way of sketching during that time. Because what I would do is... Before I would draw my storyboard, I would write the story. I walked through. I walked through the, uh, you know, the the portal. And the space opens up. I see a light. You know, telling that story of going through this kind of a, a, a spiritual process of uh, of occupying a space with words allowed me to put image to those those mm, words, mm. and then out of those vignettes of the really important moments that turns into the design of the space. Mm. Just out of curiosity, do you still begin with words? Does Do yeah. words lead you into image? Yeah. It's still... Of course, not everybody's <laughs> like that, right? I mean, I was, I'm was i a theater director, and that's uh -huh. very much my process, too. Yeah. Though not all theater directors are like that either. Yeah. Yeah. But I'll start with word and go to image, go to realization. Yeah, a lot of times it does. I mean, it's it's different. There, I go through phases. Um, I definitely went through a phase where poetry replaced sketching. Um, wow. I would just write poetry and it would get directly to the point of what I was doing. But that came after. That came when I was doing products. Right. Because the, the whole trajectory changed once I took the uh, furniture class with David McCarsky and Corey Grosser. Being a 
watch guy, the Gallup watch is a cool piece. Um, it's uh, definitely out of the norm and in the same way really fits into, uh, I think, uh, Eni's portfolio of works is that it's uh, looking at a historic brand, but uh, in Eni's usual way, sort of turns it upside down and sideways to come up with something I think really has a fresh, different look, and at the same time doesn't lose the, uh, the classic history. Um, David Bukarski, the uh, department chair for graduate and undergraduate environmental design. Oh, he, he came into the department uh, with a, a lot of, lot of energy. We have a crazy work ethic in the program. It's an extremely high bar and uh, a timetable of deliverables that uh, have to happen. And uh, Eni found that to be an interesting challenge in the early terms. We've, uh, we've always laughed about those days. You know, one of his biggest breakthroughs was uh, he got involved uh, in one of our Bernhardt-sponsored projects. That's where the realities sort of started setting in on, you know, how can you be really passionate, really committed, really driven by the work that you do, but you're working with industry professionals, things got to happen on time, uh, and, and there are no exceptions. You can't talk yourself out of it. Uh, and I think that was a, a real breakthrough moment for him. Um, and those connections that he made at that point in time have continued to serve him well to, uh, to this day. He just had a, a way of drawing from so many different sources. Um, you know, he, he had the art and design sources, but then there was also what was happening in culture and what was happening on the street and, you know, sort of bringing all of those things into the mix uh, as opposed to coming from a single point of view. He's always sort of pushing, 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 pushing the limits of what can and can't work, which is, I think, what's made his career move along as fast as it has uh, and gain so much recognition. He's uh, definitely a poster child for what we do. Uh, we're really proud of him, and that's, uh, I think, our, our, our ongoing support. There's a mutual admiration. I read somewhere you had a pivotal moment sanding a, a leg of a table or something, or mm -hmm. a form. Yeah, for the Bernhardt Studio. For the Bernhardt Studio, right. Yeah. yeah. Was, a kind uh, of epiphany? Um, I don't know if it was an epiphany, but it was a, it was a shift in f focus. It was that direct feeling of making was something that I had lost, you know, that had always been something that I did before. You know, when I, whether it was doing pottery, enameling, ceramics, you know, just working with my hands, like doing the environmental design, like architecture stuff, building these scale models. I mean, I liked it, it was fine, but building something one-to-one -one and the satisfaction of like sanding that table leg and realizing that this is gonna be a metal cast part, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And that was That was when it became real i think there's always in deep down in me i wanted to make things that were real 
and legitimate and not just imaginary. <laughs> but also the, the association I made was that sanding that leg that was going to lead to production was also this portal in and of itself, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, and that's, that walking into that world, right? And yeah. Or opening a world. It, really, opened, it opened the yeah. world that I live in now. And I loved sanding. I was just like always about the smooth. <laughs> it's like I want to make it smoother, smoother. Mm. There's no reason to take it to three thousand grit, but I'm it? I'm doing that. And but it's the process of the same thing. Right? Yeah, and almost like a mantra. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. it's it's still the way like I prepare my my breakfast and my dinners. You know, it's like just chop, try to chop everything into like you know the same size piece <laughs> in rhythm. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I ask that because of the influence of music too. Yeah, it's always that. It's. It's the, yeah, it's the rhythm. That's an integral part of your work, right? Integral part yeah. of your process of folding in that music as well. Yeah, we just did, I guess I just had my first uh, live music performance in Dallas a couple weeks ago. Wow. It was, we did a performance art piece at the Dallas Museum of Art um, on one of my immersive uh, experiences. With uh, we had eleven sculptures controlling a synthesizer, and um, yeah, we we performed a ten-minute piece of performance art with the synthesizer by controlling the sculptures. We essentially played the sculptures and had an interpretive dancer, and it was. It was everything that I'd been working on musically culminated, you know, no time signature. A loose structure of a plan of what was to be executed and three uh, individuals locking in with each other to play one instrument with an amazing uh, dancer who kind of Guided, guided my pace of how this story would evolve on stage. It's a great transition to a question I had for you, because I want to go deeper into the spiritual mythological stuff. But it sounds like it's another way in which you created a sacred space, really, right? Yeah. I mean, we call it, It's the piece is called The Oracle, and the design of it, the design, it honestly, is a continuation of something that I was developing while I was at Art Center, which is like, how do sacred spaces feel? And not only that, how do we take the cues of what we've seen in sacred spaces of the past and the, the geometry of the natural kind of physical connections to the cosmos that we see in places like Stonehenge and the, and the pyramids and filter it through a contemporary view of aesthetics, I guess, mm. uh, to create a new form of mythology for the future. Mm. Have you been to the Oracle at Delphi? I haven't, not yet. I went there many, many years ago, and I knew I was in a sacred space. Yeah. There was a feeling there. There was a quality of that space. There was a sense of peace, mm -hmm. a sense of centeredness. Yeah. A beauty that was a beauty that surrounded you that one could see but there was a, almost like an unseen kind of mm -hmm. beauty that you felt while you were there yeah 
My experience from your work is, and I, it relates very much to what you're saying about these sacred spaces, it's almost as if they contain memory, they contain story, yeah. and that your interaction w with these objects, for lack of a better word, really is a uh, an interaction that allows you to unpack that memory and that association and that story that you imbue, yeah. or that is imbued in it, whether or not, you know. Yeah. Well, I, I imbue it, and it's but it's that's what mythology what you just described that's mythology right and i think it's also important that when i talk about you know the stories behind the objects those are my stories right so so an object that you know like the orion table or the galilee table people you know there's like a light bulb goes off when i explain why the galilee table has you know solid glass legs with a blue to clear gradient and you know the tabletop is made of stone and that it represents like simon peter walking on water so then like a light bulb goes off but before that light bulb got, went off the energy of and power of that mythology of that story was there regardless and you didn't need the story in your study of, of mythology or thinking about that did you ever come across the notion of the green world the green world. Yeah. No. Yeah. Where is that? Well, that comes more from my background in Shakespeare and, and a lot from a teacher and great writer, uh, a guy named Northrop Fry, who talked a lot about the green world as the space that characters would go into. Mm -hmm. Often in Shakespearean comedy, it would be a place of confusion. It would be a place of where identity would be changed, where yeah. gender would be changed, where love would be paired and odd ways and mm. it all becomes a journey that takes an old order into a new order by the end. And I thought a lot about the green world and thinking mm -hmm. about your work and I'm thinking about it a lot now as, again, the opening these portals mm -hmm. in a very literal way, walking into Tony George's studio, yeah. right? Yeah. And going into a world and finding that discovery mm -hmm. with all its confusion yeah. and being able to come out the other side with something else. Yeah. It, struck me that that was something that you were opening up and whether the individual perceiver the one who engages with your work thinks specifically about what you thought about is less important than mm. they're entering a Just kind going of into the portal. Yeah, yeah yeah and wrestling with those yeah those kinds of questions and confusions and yeah. and ideas yeah yeah that's really all that i mean any of the the objects that i'm making really that's all they are is like a potential entry point to wonder. Do you think about it for your own life that way? I mean, can you see yourself in and out of various different green worlds? Probably. I think I think that the process of designing the objects is a bit of a green world. There's some of the, some of the things that I do, like I, after I finish it, I don't remember the process. Mm. You know, I remember how I started, but then by the time I wake up the next morning, I wake up and I go to the computer and I look at it and it's like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Well, actually, uh, that's that's a, that's a great answer because one of the elements of the green world is you only remember it very slightly. In fact, yeah. it it was just a time of great confusion and and uh, exploration and experimentation. But yeah, once you're wrestling. on the other side, it's it's just a haze. Yeah, yeah. And there's wrestling. It's I wouldn't say it's enjoyable, but it's a thrilling experience when I'm designing, when I'm on the computer. Because by the time I get to the computer, I. I something is clear you know i don't touch the computer until something's clear hmm. um sometimes you know it might be sketching that it helps it 
become clear it might be making music, it might be writing poetry, but once the lightning bolt strikes, then I get on the computer. But then begins the process of like a wrestling match, you know, of adapting and being in a flow state too while you're adapting and transforming and moving with the idea or concept to help manifest the idea or concept. I think that's part of the reason that, you know, it's so hazy at the afterward, at the end, because when you're when you're in the moment while you're doing it, you're you're focused on like, you know, this surface <laughs> and and you just kind of keep going and 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 then all of a sudden it's there. You know, you zoom out and you're like that that's it. It's and it's almost the same as the way I used to, you know, work with the sandpaper. <laughs> You got a graduate degree at ECAL, yeah, right? Yeah. In Lausanne? In Lausanne, yeah. Yeah. And it was in luxury? In luxury and design for luxury and craftsmanship. Right. So if you could just take a moment and try to help reconcile all that you've been saying about spirituality and mythology and mm-hmm. and luxury and how yeah. those two things connect for you. You know, it's it's funny because I've been asked this before, and I guess it's not obvious, but until you look at it, but anything that is a luxury object um, has some form or element of mythological or magical um, countenance in order to give it the justification to be priced above its use value. <laughs> mm. <laughs> you know, it has to touch your soul. Mm. Now, there are very expensive things. Not all of those things are luxury, you know? Right. There's a difference. Now, like, if you walk into Cartier, those things have to touch your soul for you to spend the amount of money that they cost. You walk into Hermes, it's the same thing. It's not just a a handbag, (laughs) you know? It has to be bigger than a handbag. And you have to also think, like, what is, like, even on its most basic level, because there's the mythology of the house. There's the mythology of the craftsmen that make the thing. But then there's also like just a branding mythology of the object. Like what is a Birkin bag? You know, there's a mythology of how that bag came about. <laughs> you know? Right. And um, an attention to detail and craftsmanship, yeah. as you said. Yeah, yeah. And all those things are, those things are given, right? The handcraft, all of that. But then you have to also think there's a mythology of the leather worker that um, has had this craft handed down generations upon generations upon generations you know, to continue to do it. You know, there's no way that you're a fourth generation leather worker that hasn't heard the stories of your great, 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 you know, wow. where yeah. it started. So it's it's all this compounded mythology that goes into these objects. And since they're handmade, the transference of energy is very direct. So when you have enough, when you can afford to have one of those objects and have it in your hands, you're getting all of that. You know, it's like the fingerprints of all of the mythologies that went into this thing are now in in front of you. And so for me, there's that's the best application of <laughs> of uh, of all of this thinking and all this approach to objects is to put them in the luxury space. I can imagine a listener thinking that's beautiful. Mm. And at the same time, these luxury items that are so expensive are go- going to be limited to 
a tiny part of the population. Yeah. And here is this artist designer creating things that humanity can learn so much from and engage in in such a rich way. How do you reconcile that? Those two things, you know. I, I think, I think there's inherent flaw in that way of thinking, and I don't think it's the fault of the consumer. I think it's the fault of the effects of globalization on the appropriateness of what the objects we should have. When you go to a small village in Switzerland, you can find people that everything they use is handmade. And that's the same, that's what luxury is. It's not about expensive now. If you want to have your water contained in an, a cheap plastic bottle, you know, that that is efficient for, in its own way. But it, I don't think that's necessarily the natural way that we could be interacting with with the world around us and if we were doing it in a more appropriate way in my mind it would be in a way where more of the things that we were interacting with were handmade and then it's not a matter of like luxury being expensive the only reason it's expensive is because the people that value that are people that you know are willing to spend the money for the rarity of doing that despite its inefficiency <laughs> so it's if we were to get back to a stage where I live in Pasadena, so all of my silverware comes from the silversmith in Pasadena, and then it wouldn't feel like, you know, the handcrafted creations that I'm drawn to make are only for the wealthy. There's a couple of particular pieces I wanted to ask you about. Yeah. And the first one is the stargazing chair. Yeah. And if you could describe it and tell that story a little bit, because I think it will help ground a lot of what we're talking about so far. Yeah. So the stargazer, I believe, was the, I think it was the second project I did after the Bernhardt Studio. And at that stage, I was really attached to the idea that my responsibility as a designer was to make sense of my own personal story and my own personal history and then take what I've gleaned from them to manifest creations that point to a higher truth filtered through my understanding of myself and give that to other people. So um, for that one, I like so I would go into furniture class each term determined to dissect one part of myself. So with the stargazer, that was my Nigerian heritage that I wanted to like focus on and dissect and see how it relates to what I have to offer the world. So I started looking at West African chairs, and uh, I don't even remember what the what the prompt was that semester. But essentially, what I ended up making was a chair that you can only use for stargazing. Like we went to, I made a chair buck and kept changing the angle and sitting in it until we got to an angle where it was uncomfortable to read a book, look at your phone, or look at an iPad. And that's when we knew we were at the right place. <laughs> but far enough, far enough back. Yeah, the angle of it. So like the angle, the seat to back angle is quite extreme. Right. Uh, Secret Garden, which is, mm -hmm. we already talked a little bit about the Galilee table and the, uh, I think we referenced the Orion table. But yeah. Can you talk about that project um, just again generally because I think it will 
again, summarize and concretize much of our conversation thus far. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was the first thing that I did. First thing that I did after graduating from Macau, and I didn't have a client, so then I did. I just made whatever I wanted, and I made the most impractical thing that any client probably would have tried to talk me out of, which is tables with glass legs <laughs> and stone tops and a chandelier with a marble canopy that could fall from the ceiling and crush everyone below at any point. <laughs> was the Gaia lamp, was that also part of that collection as no, well? That, no, that's, that's from, a separate that's one. That's from Say. Yeah. Oh, that's from Say. Uh-huh. Yeah. We'll get to that in a sec. Yeah, I, yeah. I, yeah. Yeah, the Secret Garden began the trajectory that I'm on now where that was my shift from being thought of as somebody that would probably um, be in the contract furniture world. Like even in my mind, you know, the I'd and I'd done the luxury program, but I still thought my bread and butter was going to be going to Neocon and trying to get contracts for royalty furniture. And this opened up the realm of adding artist to designer. And can you just, because I think it's beautiful, can you just talk for a moment on why you called it the secret garden? And because I think that's also relevant. To me, my secret garden was like the escape. It was like where I go to in my mind, where all of the fantasies are real, all the mythology is, you know, is real. You know, it's like, it's, it's really, it's a, it's a portal. And it all kind of comes from the book of the secret garden. And not only that, but the books being my secret gardens that I could tap into anytime I wanted to go back into the magic world. So bringing that into a collection and presenting it to people where these things can be their secret garden or their portal as well was, was really the concept. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And it's like a, I think for me, the other thing that was important is it was the first time that I had a proof of concept where that I presented to the world and said, are my objects going to do what I think they might be able to do? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, when it when it worked, you know, that meant there was no turning back. So and it literally opened up all the doors that I'm still walking through since 2016, like doing that project allowed me to have the products to show that explained what I'm doing. You know, and like having those images meant that when I went to, when I, when Say was looking for their next designer. Which is my next question. And yeah, so if you wouldn't mind just talking about, unfortunately we're running out of time, but, uh, um, but yeah, the Below the Heavens project with, with yeah. Say, yeah. Pablo from Say is a very unique, uh, business owner and founder and creative director of a brand, brand owner, whatever his title, you know, because he does everything. He saw the secret garden pieces and he was intrigued. He works with only one designer at a time. Yeah, correct? one designer at a time. So he worked with Jaime Hayan and then Nika Zupang. And he'd been, I think, searching for five years for the next designer. And then he saw those tables and he thought, this might be the guy. And he gave me a little test. He was like, design, you know, He's like, I hate to ask to you to do this, but could you design a product and let me see so I know that you're in line with, that you have an understanding of what Say is about. And then uh, I came up with Below the Heavens concepts just from, just from analyzation of the brand. It, you know, it's funny, 
all this stuff is like when I was in art center, it was the most focused that I had ever been at that point in my life, and I absorbed everything. And when I worked with Eight Ink, I absorbed a lot. So when I when I do get a project, my anal- it always starts with an analysis of the brand to the deepest levels, and um, yeah, that's what I did with Say. And what I realized, I was like, he's making he's making fantasy furniture. This is this is exactly what <laughs> you know. This is exactly perfect, what I'm yeah. trying to do. This yeah. is a perfect fit. Yeah, and um, and then that took me back to like when I was making music, where I was like, well, he's making fantasy furniture, but it's it's, it's grounded it's real it's like it's industrial design but it it's like fantasy industrial design so i thought back to a conversation uh to a series of conversations and eventually like a a now classic underground hip-hop album that a friend of mine made that was called below the heavens and um those conversations and you know like what he's alluding to in the songs is really about our ability to make our experience on earth as close to heaven like as possible so below the heavens means heaven adjacent but it also at the same time means is very indicative of not being in heaven you know so if it's one or the other you could choose to call it not heaven or you could choose to call it hell or you could choose to just say i'm heaven adjacent i'm below the heavens i'm right next to it and then fill your worlds with that beautiful, you know, stuff. I want to conclude by um, inviting you to, to speak to Art Center students of today who are listening to this podcast and telling them what you feel like is important to tell them. Figure out who you are. It's really the, the best thing that ever happened to me at Art Center. I took time off. I, it took me five years to graduate from Art Center. And I'm grateful for the time that I took off to reflect and write because then my manifesto developed. Thank you so much for doing this. I loved the conversation. Uh, I find you. you and your work to be quite inspiring. And I'm grateful to you. Thanks so much for having me. Change Lab is produced and recorded at Art Center College of Design. I'd like to extend a special thanks to our small but mighty production staff, producer Christine Spines, co-producer Luis Silva, editor Emily Van Bergen, and post-production supervisor and production consultant Christopher Oland.